This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Greetings, truth seekers, and welcome to this episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and I will happily be your host today. This is episode 217, entitled, The Misunderstood Resurrection in John Chapter 11. We'll get to explore this particular misunderstanding and the Christological implications that it has for the fourth gospel, the Gospel of John. Now, last week, we looked at the theme of misunderstanding regarding the euphemism of sleep in regard to Lazarus in John Chapter 11. Now, that particular example to where Jesus says that Lazarus is asleep, the disciples think that Lazarus is taking a nap and that he's going to wake up, and the text says that Jesus was speaking about his death and that Lazarus is dead. That example is one of the easiest ways that I have found to explain the theme of misunderstanding as it operates within the Gospel of John to others. You might try that example when showing it to your friends. So if this is your first episode, or if you need a reminder, the theme of misunderstanding has these three important components. First, Jesus is going to make an ambiguous statement. Second, the conversation partner misunderstands it, either by interpreting it literally or by asking an inappropriate question. Third, either Jesus or the narrator explains the statement although sometimes the explanation is missing, but clearly implied. In this week's episode, we will continue working through the occurrences of the theme of misunderstanding within the Gospel of John, looking at Jesus' dialogue with Martha in John chapter 11. In today's passage, Jesus will announce that Lazarus will indeed rise from the grave, leading to some confusion in regard to the timing of this miraculous act of resurrecting, as well as in regard to who exactly will be performing this deed. This gives Jesus the opportunity to clarify the misunderstanding, which in turn leads to a declaration of faith made by Martha that is both climactic and powerful. What is it that Jesus says that leads to Martha's confusion? How does his clarification of the misunderstanding relate to the Christology of the fourth gospel? And what are the implications of the declaration of faith that Martha offers to us, the readers? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is looking at Jesus declaring himself to be the resurrection and the life. I'll start reading out of John chapter 11 and verse 21. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again 
in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. That's John 11, verses 21 through 27. So before we look a lot deeper at the theme of misunderstanding in today's passage, I want to look at a few key points that are worth considering. First, this conversation is strictly between Martha and Jesus. There are no unbelieving Jews that are involved. The disciples aren't commenting or giving their input. This is Jesus talking to Martha and Martha talking to Jesus. Martha, of course, speaks of her brother, who is Lazarus. And Lazarus has yet to be raised from the dead within the narrative, but this miracle will occur a few verses later within this very chapter. It's also important to note that Jesus speaks of belief, the act of having faith and allegiance, in two important ways. First, Jesus speaks of the need to believe in him, and he offers the benefits of such an allegiant faith. Second, Jesus asks if Martha believes in the truths that Jesus declares, both about himself and about eschatology, about the resurrection. So, belief is framed in a way that makes the person of Jesus and the truths that he speaks the object of that faith. In other words, the reader of the Gospel of John cannot believe in Jesus without also believing in what Jesus said and did. I think that's very, very fascinating. Let's move to our second point today. Point number two, looking closer at the theme of misunderstanding involving the resurrection offered by Jesus. So you'll recall the theme of misunderstanding has three parts. The first part is that Jesus makes an ambiguous statement, and we can see this quite clearly in verse 23, where Jesus said to Martha, your brother will rise again, John 11:23. Now, when you look closely at the Greek, it actually says that your brother will rise. The word again is supplied in this particular translation, but technically speaking, it's not there in the Greek. Jesus is saying that your brother will rise. Now, there's no reference to the particular person that will be raising Lazarus in what Jesus says, nor is there any reference to the timing of this act of resurrection. There is simply a promise that Martha's brother will indeed rise in the unknown future. This, of course, raises some misunderstandings. And that moves us to the second part of the theme of misunderstanding, to where the conversation partner, which is clearly Martha, 
misunderstands what Jesus says. We can see this in verse 24, where Martha said to Jesus, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So Martha assumes, naturally, that Jesus is talking about the general resurrection that is to take place on the last day, on the day of judgment. If she is familiar with Jewish theology, she might be thinking about a passage like Daniel 12.2, where those who are sleeping in the dust of the earth will awake, the righteous to everlasting life, but the wicked to contempt and shame. However, the reader of the Gospel of John has already been made aware of the fact of resurrection based on what Jesus has said in John chapter 5, verses 28 through 29, where Jesus uses language that is remarkably similar to the language that we will see when Jesus raises Lazarus. So in John 5, 28 through 29, Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life, and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. And so when Lazarus is going to be raised from the dead later in John chapter 11, Jesus is going to say to him, Lazarus, come forth, using the same Greek that we see here in John 5, 28 through 29. So we have Jesus speaking about the promise of resurrection. This is the same promise of resurrection that we have from the Hebrew Bible, from a passage like Daniel 12.2. It's very likely that Jesus is thinking upon Daniel 12.2 when he says what he says here about resurrection in John 5.28-29. However, Jesus is speaking here in our present passage of a miracle that he is going to perform. He is going to raise Lazarus from the dead in the middle of history, prior to the last day, prior to the general resurrection. And of course, this is what Jesus has privately told to his disciples. We saw this in last week's episode. In John 11, 11, Jesus says, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. So even though Jesus is able to speak about the future general resurrection involving the righteous and the unrighteous, that's to happen on the last day, Jesus is going to go to Lazarus and raise him from the dead prior to the last day. So the misunderstanding involving Martha involves the timing of the resurrection of Lazarus that Jesus is talking about. And, as we're going to see with Jesus' clarification, there is a confusion regarding the person who will actually be raising Lazarus. Jesus is going to clarify both of these points within his explanation. You'll remember that Jesus just simply says, your brother will rise. And according to Jewish theology, the one who is going to raise the dead is none other than God, the one true God of Israel, namely the Father. But what we're going to see here is Jesus is going to declare 
that he is going to be the one who's going to be raising the dead because Jesus has been authorized by God to share in God's privileges and prerogatives, namely in God's ability and prerogative to raise the dead, to offer life. And Jesus is going to make this explicit. So this is the third part of the theme of misunderstanding where Jesus or the narrator explains the statement. We can see this explanation in John 11, verses 25 through 26. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. So Jesus is definitively claiming to be the person who raises and gives life. So the statement about Lazarus going to rise is ambiguous in regard to the subject of that raising. And Jesus is stating that he is going to be the person who brings about the resurrection and brings about the life that Lazarus needs for his dead self. Now we see here one of the I am statements in the Gospel of John that involves a predicate. That is an I am statement plus the predicate, the resurrection, and the life. We have seven of these sort of statements within the Gospel of John, and this is one of them. You'll recall that the I am phrase in Greek, ego in me, places emphasis on the subject because the subject, first person singular, is already bound up within the verb in me. And when you add an independent pronoun prior to this verb in the nominative, then there is emphasis placed on the subject. So when you're reading this, you're not thinking that Jesus is saying, I am the resurrection and the life. You need to be putting emphasis on the subject. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus is pointing and stressing the fact that he himself is the one that is doing this particular deed. And that, of course, helps us to understand the nature of the misunderstanding and how Jesus is clarifying it. He's clarifying it by pointing to himself and stressing his own role in bringing about resurrection and life. Now, it's important to note that the speculation passages about the Messiah, the Son of God, throughout the Hebrew Bible into what the Messiah will do in the Messianic age, never once mention the fact that the Messiah will be raising the dead. You can see a variety of passages in the Hebrew Bible about the Messiah, about the anointed king of God's kingdom, but none of them declare the fact that the Messiah will be the one who raises the dead. That role is attributed to God alone. However, the Messiah within the Hebrew Bible is, in fact, portrayed as bearing the prerogatives of God. He bears the attributes of God, and he even has the authoritative name of God. God the Father has shared his prerogatives, his attributes, and even his own name with this anointed king. And so by Jesus claiming in our present passage the role of 
giving life and raising the dead. This is actually consistent with the Old Testament messianic expectations, even if the specific attribution of the Messiah raising the dead is not explicit within the Hebrew Bible. Now, Jesus already made this clear for the readers of the Gospel of John earlier in John chapter 5, where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so the Father gave to the Son to have life in himself, and the Father gave to the Son authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. That's in John 5, verses 25 through 27. That is an extremely important passage that the readers of the Gospel of John need to already have clear in their mind as they're reading John chapter 11 and Jesus claiming to be the resurrection and the life. Jesus claiming the ability to raise the dead and offer life is not to confuse Jesus with the true God. It's to indicate that Jesus is the one to whom the Father has shared the role of raising the dead. The Father has given to the Son to have life and to execute judgment. And it is the Son of God who will utter forth his voice, and the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and they will live. So God has shared that with Jesus, and Jesus plainly stated this already within the Gospel of John. So let's move to our third and final point, the Christological implications to Jesus' self-declaration to be the resurrection and the life. So in this passage, Martha describes Jesus as Lord, not once, but twice. This is very likely a title offered to Jesus as a human superior, sort of like a master or a sir. It's a polite designation. It is almost certainly not a reference to the name of God, Yahweh, within the Hebrew Bible. Jesus being described as master, as sir. Now, Martha has also indicated that Jesus functions as an agent of God, even though she doesn't use the word agent. You'll notice that the first thing that she says in 11.21-22 through 22 is that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. So Martha is able to distinguish Jesus from God. She understands the relationship between Jesus and God, that Jesus can ask things of God, and that God will answer those petitions and requests. God will give those things to Jesus. And we know specifically within the theme of this entire chapter, is that God has given to Jesus the role of giving life and raising the dead. Martha has already correctly stated this, and of course, Jesus has stated it earlier, and the reader should be able to put these things together. Now, this confession acknowledges that Jesus is the authorized agent of God. God has given things to Jesus, and Jesus can ask 
things of God, and God will answer those requests. This is not a statement made by Martha that is framed as a misunderstanding. It is quite clear that Jesus is the agent of God. Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus has been framed many times as the one who has been sent by God. And if you have been sent by God, then you are an authorized agent of God. And so as the authorized agent, Jesus is able to ask of God, and God will give those things to Jesus. And so Martha is able to make this declaration quite clear so that Jesus is able to see it. And of course, it means that the readers are able to see it. And it creates a balance between the relationship of God and Jesus. God is in charge. Jesus is distinguished from God. And Jesus is able to subordinately ask things of God. And God is the one that supplies whatever Jesus needs. And of course, in our passage, that is the ability to give life and resurrection to Lazarus. So, Jesus has also said that he is the resurrection and the life, and that those who believe in him will live even if he dies. And then he tells Martha, do you believe this? We already spoke about this earlier, but the importance here is that believing in Jesus involves believing in his own person, who he is, and his identity, as well as believing in this particular theological proposition, that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and that those who believe in him will never die. So within this short passage, he acknowledges that people need to believe in him, and then after speaking a theological truth about his own Christological identity, as well as the resurrection, he asks Martha, do you believe this? So belief involves two things, believing in Jesus and believing in what Jesus says and does. That makes belief an extremely important proposition that needs to be thoroughly defined. Now, she responds by saying that, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, in Greek, the verb to believe is in the perfect tense. The perfect tense involves something that has already taken place in the past, but the effects of that particular verb continue on into the present. So she's not saying that I believe in the present. She's saying I have believed. I have believed this already in the past, and because of the function of the perfect tense, she continues to believe that in the present. So she has already believed this particular point about Jesus. And it's an extremely important point. And it indicates that this particular belief and the contents of this belief are very important. Namely, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Remember that Christ is the anointed king, namely the anointed king of God's kingdom. And as Son of God, he is God's descendant. He is God's anointed king. Son of God was a title for the anointed king. And if Jesus is the son of God, then that makes God the father. Because sons are descendants of 
fathers. Now, you'll recall that the purpose statement of the Gospel of John, the reason why the Gospel of John was written, according to John 20, verse 31, is that you are to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you will have life in his name. It's very interesting here that in our present passage, Martha declares that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, in response to Jesus talking about life and believing in him. So the declaration that is made here by Martha is exactly the sort of theology and declaration that the writer of the Gospel of John wants the reader to take. And this indicates that what Martha is saying here is correct. It is theologically valid. It is not missing particular components. And what's interesting here is that when you see this declaration by Martha that Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, and you compare it to similar declarations that we see in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you will note that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it is Simon Peter who makes this declaration. Like in Matthew 16, 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In this book, in the Gospel of John, it is Martha who makes the statement. And since the statement in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is meant to be climactic, then it also indicates in the Gospel of John, this statement is climactic, but it doesn't come from Peter. In the Gospel of John, it is Martha who makes the climactic statement. It is a female. It is a woman who makes this statement. And the statement mirrors the purpose statement that the Gospel of John plainly states that it wants its readers to adopt when it finishes the reading of its particular book. Now, Martha says that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. And this particular phrase has led to discussion about pre-existence. What does it mean that the Christ, God's anointed king, comes into the world? Now, this particular phrase used by her is a present participle. He is the one who is coming into the world. Now, what does this mean? It sounds a little odd. Jesus is standing there on planet Earth, talking to Martha, and she says that I have believed that you are the one who is coming into the world. It's a process. She is currently coming into the world. Well, you'll have to remember that the world within the Gospel of John does not refer to the earth. It doesn't refer to the third rock from the sun. The world within the Gospel of John is the realm of creation that is in need of of redemption. God so loved the world that he commissioned Jesus to bring about eternal life. Eternal life is what the world needs. So the world is not a neutral term within the Gospel of John. The world is a negative term involving creation that is in need of redemption. So what is the creation that is in need of redemption within our present passage? Well, clearly that is the person of Lazarus who has died. He is in need of redemption, namely he is in need of life and resurrection. There's an interesting passage later in the Gospel of John where Jesus is going to offer a parable about 
a woman who is in labor giving birth to a child, where he uses this phrase about coming into the world. In John 16, 21, I think this passage is very interesting. Jesus says, whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. That's John 16, 21. And it's that language there, into the world. The child has been born into the world. And for a child to be born into a world is not a sense of a pre-existing conscious child that descends from heaven and comes down to earth. To be born into the world means to be born, to be created through the act of bearing children, through being born through natural childbirth. That's very clear. Jesus is able to use this language of being born into the world with the analogy of a woman giving birth to her child. That's very interesting. But the sense here is that Jesus is the one who comes into the world. Jesus is effectively the coming one, the one who is to come. And this sort of language is quite frequently used of Jesus throughout the Gospel of John, and it's also used in the other synoptic accounts. In fact, in our current chapter, John chapter 11, Jesus has been described already as the coming one, the one who comes. And so earlier in John 11, verse 17, it says that when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for days. So there Jesus is the coming one. And again, he is coming into the world. He is coming to see Lazarus having already died and being in the tomb for four days. A few verses later, in verse 20 of John 11, Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. There she hears that Jesus, the coming one, is effectively coming. He's on his way. She runs out to meet him. Now, as with nearly everything within the Gospel of John, these points tie back into the prologue. The prologue sets the stage for the theology that we're going to see throughout the rest of the Gospel of John. So in the prologue of John, which is the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John in John 1, we can see in verse 9 that there was the true light which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. That's John 1.9. So the true light is the light that enlightens every man. And so this is described as a light that is coming into the world. And you can see there that the world involves people that need to be enlightened. They need to be redeemed. They are in darkness. They need to be enlightened. And since we're in the prologue, we can also look at the theme of life that Jesus possesses, because that was already described in regard to the Logos, the personified speech of God. So the first four verses of the prologue indicate that in the beginning was the Word, which is God's speech, his creative and powerful utterance, and that Word was with God, the true God, the Father, and that word 
was fully expressive of God. Then the prologue personifies the word as a personified male because logos is grammatically masculine. So the logos personified is a he who was in the beginning with God and all things came into being. All things were created through the logos. All things were created through this personified speech. And apart from him, the personified logos, nothing came into being that has come into being. And then we have the important phrase in verse four, in him, in this personified logos, God's personified creative and powerful speech, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. So there, God's word is stated from the beginning as having life, the ability to offer life. And then we see Jesus in John chapter 11, who is the embodiment of the Logos. He is the Logos made flesh. He says that he is the resurrection and the life because that theology was already stated earlier in the Gospel of John, that God's Logos has life and that life brings about the light of men. And remember that true light in John 1, 9 is the one that enlightens every man by coming into the world. So it's very important that we read the rest of the Gospel of John in light of the themes that were already introduced within the prologue. In the prologue, we see God's creative and powerful speech personified, involved in creation, that also have life and the ability to enlighten other human beings. That logos becomes flesh, becomes embodied in the human Jesus, and Jesus now is the one who claims to be the resurrection and the life, and the one that enlightens people as the one who is coming, the coming one, the one who comes into the world, that is, Jesus comes to the unredeemed creation and brings about life, he brings about resurrection, and the enlightening of other men for those who believe in him and believe in what he says. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Please join us next week as we continue our exploration of the theme of misunderstanding in John chapter 12, where Jesus is going to speak of his death and glorification with, you guessed it, with ambiguous words. So please look forward to our next episode. Now, if you enjoy our podcast, it would really be meaningful to me if you can give it an honest rating on iTunes, if you can share the episode with your friends, and if you are listening to this on YouTube, if you could subscribe to the channel. Please consider supporting us as we promote the sound truths of the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus. If you'd like to offer a donation, you can check us out on PayPal. We have a link to donating on PayPal associated with this particular episode in the description. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, you folks, please take care.